0: Now remain standing for our gospel lesson from John chapter 11. Pay close attention to this long reading. This is God's gospel. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany. The town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We ask you, God, to bless the reading and preaching and hearing of your word this hour. We ask it by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. When God told Abraham to take his son Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, God didn't tell Abraham how it was going to end. He didn't promise Abraham that Isaac would come down the mountain with him. That day at least. And yet Abraham went up the mountain with Resurrection hope. The book of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his only begotten son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned. He reasoned on the basis of the promises. He reasoned by faith that God could even raise the dead. And so in a man, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham had the resurrection perspective. He knew that his God is a God of resurrection and this faith as the author of hebrews calls it this resurrection hope enabled abraham to trust god even during this extreme test of being told to put the promised child the promised son to death abraham didn't know how it would all work out god didn't spell out the details it says he reasoned the the big picture But he knew, by faith, that God always brings resurrection out of death for the ones he loves. That's what he knew. In the book of Habakkuk, that minor prophet that's hard to find, we witness a turning point in the prophet Habakkuk's perspective. At the beginning of his book, Habakkuk seemed hopeless. Remember all those questions he's asking God? You know, what are you doing, God? He says in chapter 1, toward the very beginning, the second verse, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? As Habakkuk looked at his own people Israel, the promised people, the, the chosen people, he saw oppression and immorality, unfaithfulness within, oppression from the outside. It looked as if God's sense of justice was gone. It looked as if God had abandoned His people and had turned a deaf ear even to His prophet, Habakkuk. But then by faith, He meets God He encounters God, and from then on, he has a divine perspective, a resurrection perspective, we can call it. He suddenly realizes that God can and, in his time, will judge his enemies and vindicate his people. He doesn't know how, but he trusts that he will. He concludes his book this way, in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, though the olive I'm sorry and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my savior. That's resurrection hope. That's faith in the God of resurrection, new life. Do you see your present problems from the perspective of your future hope? When God will finally make all things right. Do you interpret the difficulties and pains and challenges of life through Abraham's grid of faith? And hope in the God who raises the dead. Is that that your grid? The book of Habakkuk is instructive for us. Because we, like Habakkuk. Find ourselves on both sides of that fence. Don't we? Sometimes we look around at what's going on. And what God is doing. And we can't find anything Redeemable. It doesn't make sense. We can't imagine how God is up to anything good. And we see all kinds of ways He could have made it, He could have done it better. And so we ask, are you there, God? Are you listening to anything I'm saying? Why aren't you stepping in to save or to heal or to judge or to bring resolution? But other times we remember, as Habakkuk did before it was over with, that no matter how bad it gets, God is still God. God is still in control. And there are good reasons to rejoice in the Lord and to be joyful in God, my Savior. In the story of Lazarus's death and resurrection in John 11, Jesus is helping Mary and Martha, in particular, move toward greater resurrection faith. They believe in the future resurrection of the dead, but he wants them to see that resurrection life and resurrection joy in the Lord has already come. Resurrection life and joy is not just a future reality. It's yours now in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. This passage is good medicine for our hearts because the death of Lazarus is symbolic of the hardships that we encounter, the difficulties that come to every one of us, whether it's the death of a loved one, the loss of a job or the waywardness of. Of a child or a friend or a spouse. Lazarus' death symbolizes all of these things. The, the sin, the sickness, the death of this fallen world. And all of its consequences. The consequences of the fall. Our Lord's approach here also shows us how our God deals with us in the midst of these trials that we face. This story teaches us about resurrection faith, resurrection hope, resurrection perspective. At the end of John 10, it's been a few weeks since we've been in John, at the end of chapter 10, after the final confrontation in the temple, Jesus went out to the wilderness, beyond the Jordan, it says, to the place where John, baptized And there, Jesus carried on his ministry. The last verse of John 10 says that many believed in him there. So his ministry is fruitful. But while he was there, a personal emergency arose in Bethany. John 11, verses 1 and 2 say, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This is the Mary who loved to sit at the Lord's feet and contemplate his teachings. And this is the Martha, who was also devout, but who was sometimes too busy serving to just sit down in the presence of Jesus. Then there was Lazarus, their brother. And this family from Bethany was very dear to Jesus. He had a unique personal affection for them. We know from the other Gospels that he liked to stay in their home on occasion. But now things had changed and the household was in disarray because Lazarus was gravely ill. He could die at any time. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, this wasn't just an invitation or a gentle request. They assumed that as soon as the Lord learned of this situation, he would come quickly. They knew Jesus and they understood his compassion, his love for them. Of course, Jesus would come. It's inconceivable that he wouldn't. And yet look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now before we go on, I want to point out, verse 4 contains the theological key, to this passage everything that's about to happen is for the glory of God and the glory of God's son the Christ if you're reading this for the first time then the next two verses verses five and six are confusing even troubling now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus verse six so therefore when he heard that he was sick he stayed two more days in the place where he was There seems to be a disconnect here. How does verse 6 follow verse 5? Says Jesus loved them Mary Martha Lazarus so much that he stayed away. He didn't come. From ground level It seems sometimes, it appears to us, that even though we're Christ's children, even though we belong to Jesus, He doesn't really care about our particular situation. At times, our circumstances seem to admit no other interpretation. Last week, we considered how Joseph was sold by his brother's into slavery and he ended up in Potiphar's household and through hard work and integrity and devotion to his job and his master, he rose up only to be toppled because he would not compromise himself with Mrs. Potiphar. As a result, he ended up in an Egyptian dungeon, jail from ground level. It appeared God had forsaken him, Joseph Had honored God as a young man, but it may have seemed to Joseph that God didn't care about him any longer. When a Christian is falsely accused and pleads with God to bring about justice, to bring the evidence to light to clear him, and it's only after his reputation is ruined that the evidence comes, we wonder if God cares. When God withholds blessings from you that he seems to be giving to everyone else around you, you wonder, what's the point? Is there a point here? And you even grow secretly weary, perhaps, of hearing that it's all for your good if you love God. We, we must be honest and admit that at ground level, there are times when it's very difficult to keep believing, or at least feeling, even if we can believe, in the goodness of God. But John 11 elevates our ground level perspective. It reminds us that no matter how it may appear to your eyeballs, God's inexplicable delays are delays of love. That's what the text says. I'm not making that up. When you're being ravaged by the events of life and Jesus delays in bringing relief, it's difficult to believe that he loves you. But John 11:5 and 6 clearly claim That these delays are delays of love. He loved these three people. And so he stayed away a little while longer. Jesus is all powerful. He can do anything, He knows all. He knows when the sparrow falls, He knows your plight, and He cares. Last week we learned that His delays are for your good. Now we see in verse 4 of John 11 that they're also for God's glory. And we see in verses 5 and 6 that they're motivated by His love for you. How can we earthbound creatures come to understand this kind of love? To believe it in in spite of our crises. First, remember that you, you, you're never able to comprehend His workings, God's workings, in their fullness, in their completeness, in all, in all their details. You can't see the very top or the very bottom or all the way to the left or all the way to the right. When delays and difficulties happen... You can't expect to know all the details, all the answers, all the reasons. The general principle is this. Christ often delays in coming to his faithful followers. He often delays in coming to his faithful followers in order to strengthen their love and their faith. For two days, Jesus calmly stayed away. And went about his work. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, what are you thinking? Lately, the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going back there again? Verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? In other words, we still have time. Just trust me. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. Because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And there, Jesus, there's sort of a double meaning there. He's telling them it's still daylight, that the darkness that's coming, it's not here. You know, we got 12 hours and we're not to the end of that 12 hours. But he's also telling them that if you walk in the light, if you walk in the day, you won't stumble no matter what. Verse 11, these things He said, and after that He said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Verse 12, then His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. You know, let let him sleep, let him heal. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that He was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Therefore, sorry, nevertheless, let us go to him. Verse 16, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You've got to love Thomas's comment there in verse 16. Okay, men, you you heard the master. Let's go back to Jerusalem so that when they kill him, they'll kill us too. Thomas doesn't realize, though, that the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God could not be shared by his disciples. There's a lot he doesn't understand, of course, but that's one thing to draw from this. This is... The death that Jesus will die is a unique death. It's for Him only. Now, the disciples will die in their ministries. They will take up their cross, but Jesus will die a unique death, a sacrificial death for the sins of His people. And as one commentator put it, there is another sense in which Thomas spoke better than he knew. His words have become a clarion call to would-be disciples to take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. End quote. The disciples needed to learn that as long as they were walking in the spiritual light of day, they wouldn't stumble. They might die eventually, but they could die with resurrection hope. They could rejoice in being in and with the God who himself is resurrection and life. By now, Lazarus was indeed dead. His sisters and probably others had prepared him for burial. They would have put a a white linen gown of some kind on him. And they wrapped him with bandages and no doubt spices. By the time Jesus arrived in Bethany, it was the fourth day, at least part of four days. The body was decaying, and there was no hope. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary, to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus. Here's what she said when she got there, just outside of Bethany. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This sentiment probably came often from the lips of Martha and Mary over the past few days. The wait had been agonizing as they wondered, when will Jesus get here? She continues in verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So verses 21 and 22 are words of Grief that stems from love and faith. Grief and faith. Verse 21, Martha is confident that if Jesus had been present with Lazarus, when Lazarus was ill, Jesus would have healed him. In verse 22, in her bereavement, she has not yet lost confidence in Jesus. That's the point here. And she won't lose confidence in Jesus. She recognizes the peculiar intimacy that Jesus enjoys with the Father. It's an intimacy that ensures unprecedented fruitfulness in his prayers. In the prayers of Christ. Whenever Jesus asks the Father for something in prayer, the Father always answers favorably. And she's confessing that. Notice the Lord's response to Martha to her expression of grief and her confession of faith. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And then Martha Martha replied to Him in verse 24, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know, of course, Jesus, I know that He will rise from the dead at the end of history. The general resurrection, when everybody will be raised from the dead. But Lord, what about right now? I'm hurting now. I want to see him now. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the sixth great I am statement recorded in John's gospel. It's not a mere man who is the resurrection and the life. This, this man is God, God in the flesh. Notice how he doesn't right, Jesus doesn't right away give, give her give Martha the comfort that we might kind of want him to give like he knows what's getting ready to happen he he knew what was. he told his disciples what was going to happen uh, implicitly he knew the end of this story but that's not what he points to first first he points to himself right now as the resurrection and the life standing before her and he says do you believe this do you believe in me are you trusting me before we get to the end that she doesn't know about yet. Jesus doesn't want Martha to focus only on her belief in what will happen on the last day. He also wants her to trust personally in the One who can provide resurrection life now. Our faith, our hope, is both future and present. Our hope is set on what is to come because we recognize that we don't get to experience it all now. We feel that. But our faith and our hope are also in Jesus right now, the resurrection life that He gives us even now, His presence even now. Just as Jesus not only gives the bread from heaven, but also is Himself the bread from heaven, so also He not only raises the dead on the last day, but also is Himself the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of Jesus. Resurrection life, eternal life, only comes in Christ. Does Martha believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Martha believes in Jesus. She had been tested with grief and loss, and she had allowed her Savior to bring her, to bring her forth as gold, Refined in the fire. Her confession is as great as Peter's confession. This is this is a great believer, a remarkable woman of faith. And this confession comes again before what she really wanted happens. She was one of Jesus' favorites, one of his closest friends. And so we see here that even the most faithful followers of Christ suffer the delays of His love. They ask the hard questions, why weren't you here? But God meets them and elevates their perspective by His grace. And notice how Jesus enters into these sisters' grief. Verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her. When they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell down at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. There's that refrain again. Mary said the same thing that her sister had said when she met Jesus at this same place by herself. They must have been talking about this for the last few days this was their morning song if only jesus were here our brother wouldn't be dead then comes one of the most beautiful and deepest comforting truths in scripture verse 33 therefore when jesus saw mary weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping he groaned in his spirit and was troubled another way to translate that last phrase is he was outraged in his spirit and was troubled and he said where have you laid him they said to him lord come and see jesus wept then the jews said see how he loved him jesus wasn't just moved to tears by their grief He was angered by it. He was outraged by it. His anger is directed at the sin, sickness, and death that wreaks so much havoc in this world and that generates so much pain and sorrow. That's what Jesus came to eradicate. The thing to see here in verses 33 to 35 is that Jesus was both grieved and angered. That, that groaning is, 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 is anger, it's outrage, it's deep. The sin, sickness, and death that prompted his outrage also generated his tears. And we say it's good to have both. Outrage without Grief and tears is imbalanced, but it's also the other way. He felt their sorrow with everything he had. Mary's and Martha's sorrows were taken on his heart. He loved them as much as he loved Lazarus. Now, verse 35 is famously the shortest verse in the English Bible. There's a shorter one. In Greek. Apparently, the men who assigned chapters and verses to the Bible recognize how important this sentence is. Jesus wept. So they gave it its own verse. Tears were running down Jesus' face. He was genuinely sad. We have a great God and Savior who. Loves us and cares about us enough to cry for us and with us. Sometimes he delays, sometimes he stays away, and he allows us to experience deep sadness. But he always comes and he always enters into our sorrow with us. He enters into the pain. That he could have prevented. So if you're hurting. He wants you to know that he sympathizes with you. Jesus is not a stoic. He's not emotionless. Neither is God the Father. Or the Spirit. Hebrews one three says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Since Jesus knows and experiences our groaning, God the Father also feels with us. John says in the opening, uh, in the opening chapter of his Gospel, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus is the declaration of God the Father. His whole life and ministry and teaching is a declaration of God. He's the exegesis of the Father, the exposition of the Father. He makes the Father known. He reveals the Father's nature. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. We don't have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. God shares in our sorrows. You know how this works if you have children, parents. What happens inside of you when you see other kids making fun of your child because of something she's wearing? Or because the joke that he told wasn't funny? How do you feel when your infant has a high fever? When your children experience disappointment or rejection or embarrassment or pain or sorrow or sickness, you experience it right along with them. Sometimes you even experience it more deeply than they do. And so I ask, is God a less compassionate parent than you? Does he feel your groaning less than you feel your children's? Of course not. He loves you more than you love your children. A lot more. If you're a wise parent, you don't always step in when your child is hurting. You know the value of letting them experience the pain of life in this sin-diseased world. There are mean people. There are hard circumstances. You can't take that away. You can't shield them from it forever. Sometimes they need to work through the emotional pain or the physical pain on their own, at least for a time. Or at least without you stepping in the way you would like. God does the same thing with us. With you. And he does it because he's wise. And hear this. He does it because he loves you. Does God sometimes seem passive and disconnected from your trials? Of course. That's normal. That's by design. It's part of your training program. He does it because he's wise. And hear this. Because he loves you. His delays are for your development in faith and righteousness and character. As it was for Mary and Martha. At the same time, he's never ever as far as he sometimes seems. Now, not everyone was impressed with the kind of love that Jesus is showing here. Sometimes we're not either. Verse 36 says that some of the Jews were calling attention to how much Jesus obviously loved Lazarus. uh, And and we can infer that it's because of his, his tears, his weeping. But in verse 37, we see that not everyone was as impressed And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? You know, his best buddy? What do you mean, see how much Jesus loves Lazarus? If Jesus loved him so much, why didn't he come and heal him before it was too late? Let's see what happens. Verse 38. Then Jesus again groaning in himself or again becoming outraged in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he has been dead for four days. We can understand how Martha felt. With all this misery, why pile on? Why open the grave and let the stench come out? Why pour salt on the wound? Why look at the face of a putrefying corpse? She didn't understand what Christ wanted to do. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So imagine the scene with me. Martha apparently gives her consent. She objects, but then... Apparently, she gives her consent and the stone is rolled away. Jesus starts to talk to the father out loud so that everyone could hear his prayer, his communication with the father. And surely the crowd of people grows quiet as they try to sort out the mixture of confusion and curiosity Generated by Jesus' odd actions. Perhaps Jesus' public prayer allows the sisters to begin to become cautiously hopeful. It's hard to say. Not much time elapses. And then suddenly, verse 43 when Jesus had said these things, he cried with a loud voice Lazarus, come out, come forth. Now he didn't have to shout. For the miracle to work. We know that right. He wanted everyone to comprehend the drama. Verse 44. And he who had died came out. Bound. Hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them. Loose him and let him go. The funeral. Became a party. The dead man. Was alive. As believers, we know that all our times of sorrow will eventually turn into joy. We believe that. We know it. Remember the promise in Revelation 21, 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, from our eyes. There shall be no more death. No, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away there is joy in the morning but the morning delays what about right now what do you do in the meantime well in the meantime you can choose your perspective you can dwell on what you see and experience at ground level, and you can get lost so that it's the only thing you see. Or you can choose to believe that the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the resurrection and the life, and that help is on the way. He won't delay forever. His delays are always temporary. And they're delays of love. God's silence is a silence of love. Yes, sometimes God is silent to our senses, to our experience. He cares so much, though, that He enters into your sorrows. Remember, He's not stoic. We don't have an emotionless God. He feels your pain to the extent of weeping along with your weeping. He understands you better than you understand yourself. He brings joy and resurrection life into your afflictions. He will one day give you eternal joy, eternal resurrection life in the new heavens and new earth. That's where your hope lies. That's where it's anchored. Your, do- your hope doesn't lie in this world. It lies in the world to come. It's a living hope that's kept in heaven for you. That's that's how Peter puts it. It's kept in heaven, but it was purchased for you on the cross by the resurrection and the life. He, Jesus, paid for your sins on the cross so that you could have a hope that goes beyond this Life. Those who believe in Jesus have an inheritance waiting for them in heaven. And after that, in the new heavens and new earth. I'll close with two passages on the heavenly hope of Christians. For those who are redeemed by the blood of the crucified and resurrected Son of God. One from 1 Peter that I alluded to and one from 2 Timothy. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This hope, your inheritance, is waiting on you in heaven if the blood of Christ has paid for the sins that you've committed on this earth. Wait on it. Long for it. Live for it. Put your hope in it. Store up your treasures in it. Look forward to it. Set your heart and your mind on it. It more than you set them on anything in this world. Now, 2 Timothy 3.18. Paul knows he's about to die. And here's what he tells Timothy at the end of the last inspired epistle that Paul wrote. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, deed, and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. We thank You for the blessed hope. The hope of the heavenly kingdom, Father. We thank You that Your Son, Jesus has redeemed us and made a way for us to be rescued and to be brought safely into this heavenly kingdom. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be glory forever and ever. Amen.